you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. That is towards the end of the Bible, if you're not sure. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. And as we begin this morning, if we looked at many of the relationships that we have around us, many come and many go. The ones that stay are the ones that are built on a strong foundation, typically with common interests that a friend has with another. The ones that don't last are normally founded on very shaky ground. When storms or difficulties come, that relationship is torn apart in many part ways. The very thing that they thought they built does not survive. You see, the groundwork is very important in our relationship with others. It's also very important in our relationship with God. Today we'll begin a new series in the book of Titus, where Paul opens the letter with a reminder of what he has been called to and reminding Titus of the sure foundation that had already been set for him in the faith. This morning we're going to be looking at three things. Number one, the author, verse one, first part. Number two, the commission, second part of verse one to verse three. And number three, the recipient, verse four. Number one, the author, verse one, first part. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In this simple start of the letter, Paul identifies himself as a bondservant and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's take a look at some of this background to this letter. You see, Paul was a practicing Jewish Pharisee who studied under the well-respected Rabbi Gamaliel. And he started off by persecuting the church before coming to saving faith in Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, in Acts 22, we find Paul defending his Jewish faith before a mob that wanted to accuse him of blasphemy. The very thing, by the way, that he accused Christians of committing when he himself was pursuing them. Turn your Bibles really quick to Acts chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 21. Acts 22, verses 3 through 21. This is really to give us a bit of a recap as to who Paul is and what he was called to. Starting in verse 3 in Acts chapter 22. I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught under according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bear me witness in all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Now a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Essentially, Paul is called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We see that Paul was very much against the Christian faith originally, to the point of persecuting the church. I would venture to say that probably his opposition to the church had a lot to do with his pharisaical background and teaching under Gamaliel, which really stresses a point that's important for all of us to think of. It matters who you are taught by. And many of the things that you're taught, you end up taking as your own. So it makes a difference who your point of authority is. Especially when it comes to other men and women around you. Jesus reveals himself to Paul. One of the most supernatural experiences we read about in all of Scripture, in the New Testament in particular. And Paul is converted and sent out as an apostle to the Gentiles. Though he never, by the way, wavered from sharing the faith with his Jewish brethren either. It's important to make sure we note that. He never neglected to share with the Jewish people. The unfortunate thing in his ministry is that most of the time he just got run out of town or out of the synagogue as soon as he got in. You see, Paul's loyalty is clearly seen in the phrase that he starts this letter to Titus with. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul knew where his loyalty lied. It wasn't to Titus. It wasn't to people. It was to Christ. His service was to Christ. He was on a mission sent out by him. 
Every time you and I consider ministry, do we remember that it's a mission for him? Or do we tend to think, I'm doing this for pastor, or I'm doing this for so-and-so in the church? Do we see the bigger picture? Is that why you and I, when we look at our lives, get confused by our priorities? Maybe we forgot who gave us the mission. That's why when Paul makes the statement, follow me as I follow Christ, he's giving you the example. That the ultimate to follow was not Paul himself. It was Christ. Do we see that we're on a mission for Christ? And that we're servants? Or the real word as used here, which causes controversy today by our culture, slave? Bond slave? Christ owns us. We are his. Glorify God in your body, which are his, as scripture tells us. Are we willing to serve him? You see, Paul is an apostle or a sent out one. Now, we're not going to get into all the qualifications of an apostle today. But I do want to point out some particulars. An apostle, capital A, was qualified by the following. And we're not going to turn to all these texts, but you can write them down and look for yourself. Number one, they had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. You'll see that in Acts 1, 21 through 22, and 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Number two, they had to be selected by Christ himself. You couldn't be bestowed apostleship by somebody else. The only exception to that was Matthias, who was selected by lots after Judas went and hung himself. That's the only exception to that rule. But you'll find all of that in Acts Uh, In Luke 6.13, Acts 26.16, and back in Acts chapter 1, where you see the casting of lots for Matthias in verses 23 through 26. And the third one, an apostle had miraculous healing power and authority over demons. Matthew 10.1, Acts 5.12, Acts 19.11, and 2 Corinthians 12.12. You see, many of the miracles done today by those who believe they are commissioned by God are fraudulent exercises. They're not rod of God. They're an exercise of the imagination rather than reality. They do not belong in the same category as someone like the Apostle Paul. Now, can God work miracles today? Sure he can. No one can argue that. But why didn't more people get healed that were dying of COVID by apostles that could come to the hospitals and make sure by just a touch of their hand 
the whole ward would be clear to release to go home. Because this same exact gift is no longer in existence. Imagine the testimony of these men that could have proclaimed the healing power of God. Imagine the kind of glory God would have gotten if people had that kind of supernatural power today. Because that's essentially what the apostles were doing. They weren't doing it just to show miracles. It was to point to Christ. What a great, what a great opportunity. You had scores of people sick. If this gift was even in any way approachable today, then it would have been one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities we would ever experience. Paul, in his his identity with Christ, knew that Christ called him to a specific calling and a mission. Number two, the commission. Verses one through three, the second part of verse one. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. You see, it's more than likely that the Christians were saved during Pentecost under the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And it's also noted that Paul himself had spent some time there as Titus is left behind to continue the work there. These people were known for a very loose lifestyle with very low morals. There's no uh, good old days, even back then. Don't let culture define whether or not God's word is still needed or not. It's always been needed. There have always been people with low moral standards. They've always existed. Just because something is more readily available through media today does not mean that it was not tolerated and explored throughout centuries. Paul's call was the bolster of the faith of the elect, those who had trusted Christ, by encouraging them to pursue truth which leads to godliness. Paul's mission was not enough to say, you need Jesus. His mission was finished when he discipled as well. And let me pause for a moment and make this statement. It is not enough to want people to come to Christ without teaching them afterward. That's not the Great Commission. That's only part of the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you is a hard task. Which means you need to know what it is that has been commanded. Which means if you don't get into the word of God, you won't be able to disciple anyone. And any parent that thinks veggie tales will disciple their kids very well is a very poor 
Very poor example of what discipleship looks like. If the truth that, I, that you and I pursue is leading us to further wickedness, then it's our perception rather than explicit statements of Scripture we're following. Because this right here should be teaching you and me to live godly lives. Ask yourself for a moment, how is it that some people can claim they read the Bible, they're in the Bible, but they're living absolutely ungodly lives? Is the problem with the Bible? Of course not. You ask yourself this question, I need to ask myself this question, why is it that the Pharisees knew so much of Scripture, but it didn't do anything in their lives? And you have to ask yourself this question personally, why is it that so many times I'm not in the Word for the right reason? A believer that falls into a lifestyle of isolation from the things of God and the people of God cannot live for God in the way that he intended for them. If your study of scripture is not producing better fruit in your life, believer, then your heart isn't in the right place to open the word when you do. Your actions come from a carnal rather than a spirit-led heart. It is really the, one of the most interesting statements that one will hear. And I'm sure you and I have heard it many times. Maybe you've said it too. Everyone in the church is a hypocrite. I don't need them to have a relationship with God. After all, I read my Bible and pray. I don't think you've realized what you just stated there. What you essentially stated is I really haven't read my Bible, though I'm claiming I did. Do you realize that most New Testament books were written by Paul to churches? A group of believers that gathered together, full of carnal, worldly people that needed to learn godliness, which is what this book of Titus is all about, or the epistle to Titus. So here's my question. What are you reading your Bible for? Well, we're going to dig deep today. What are you reading your Bible for? It's a magical blessing that you get. A good feeling. So you did something that day that would please the Lord. What are you doing it for? What am I doing it for? To impress people with the knowledge that I've learned? Why do I study for hours so I can show this new Greek word that I've realized as a pastor? I mean, let's be honest. Why do, we do, why do we do what we do? Are you looking for some magic blessing from God so your kids turn out better, parents? Is that what we're doing? Well, we read the Bible together. It's going to be all perfect now because we read the Bible. It's not how it works. Especially because you can read plenty of Scripture, and if you don't do any of it, it's only half the battle. Are you reading the Bible so your life isn't as bad as it could be? 
Oh, you know, it could be much worse if I didn't read today. You're probably right. That's not a good motivation, though. You ever done that? Had a horrible day, and then you read the Bible out of guilt the next day? Oh, please, don't tell me I'm the only one that's done that. I know what was wrong. I didn't read today, so I better read tomorrow. And if I read, then it's going to go much better. And maybe many times it does, does it not? But is that the right motivation, or do we want to hear from God? Why do we use him like this amazing magic genie that's going to give me what I want because I did something? I opened a Bible and read it. If a person reads their Bible with the heart that seeks to please God, only humility will arise out of a person like that. They'll be just like the publican who asks for mercy. By the way, hypocritical Pharisees are found in and outside the church. They're not just found in the church. They're in and out. You just pick your flavor. They just fail to, recon- rec- fail to recognize their own identity. Everybody else is the Pharisee. I can't be one. That's essentially what a lot of Pharisees will say. Everybody else is hypocrite. I'm not. Oh, really? Look in the mirror. You see, Paul reminds these believers in Crete of the guarantee, hope, and assurance of eternal life which was promised before time ever began. God who does not lie. Pause for a moment and think of that statement. God does not lie to you and me. You and I are liars by default. If we were to tally up all the ways we've lied to people this last week, we'd be shocked if we were to be honest. And what I mean by lies are half-truths that many of us tell each other. How's everything going? It's going great. Literally just complained five minutes ago about how much you couldn't stand that day. My favorite one is fine, right? What do you even mean by that word? I don't want to get into how that flows in our relationships. God who does not lie has determined in eternity past that he would save his people through the gospel preached which is what Paul was commissioned to preach. And by the way, so are you if you're his disciple. Your commission is to preach the gospel as well. The promise of eternal life should give us confidence and not doubt. And here's why it should give you confidence based on this text. Because God is not a liar. God does not lie. When God promises something, he delivers on the promise. It's us that cause a lot of the doubt by our sin. It is not his word. His word is faithful. What he promises, he will fulfill to the end. The reason many do not have confidence in their Christian life is because they do not pursue godliness, which causes doubt and lack of assurance. 
You show me a brother or sister that follows Christ and they are faithful and they care to live a godly life, and I promise you they have a lot more assurance than the brother or sister that does not. Because by default, your sin will cause doubt. You'll doubt God's faithfulness. You'll doubt whether other people love you. You'll doubt whether or not you're even saved. Because you can't even believe how many times you keep failing that God really is still working in your life. I don't know if you've ever had this thought, because I can tell you I had this thought just the other week. Wake up and you go, God, why am I even still here? I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be alive. I was telling my wife the other day, I don't know how many of you know Elm Street in Westfield and that little hill that goes up. When I was a little boy, I'd ride my bike across and I'd go work at Burger King and stuff like that. You know, a couple miles up the road. And one day, I'm riding my bike and my brakes do not work at all. I go right through traffic. To this day, it's God's mercy a car wasn't there at that time. I remind myself, every time I drive by it, I could have been a different ending. You don't realize how many of those moments we have in our lives that we're not even aware of. I always get encouraged by that verse, the angel of the Lord encamps round about those that fear him and delivers them. You realize how many times God has spared you of absolute assurance you're dead? You're gone? And he was merciful? whether it was that sin you were caught in, whether it was that bad decision you made, whether it was the people you spent time with and one of them passed away early and somehow you were spared. Scripture is filled with texts that promise assurance for the believer who walks in the ways of God. And chastening and doubt for the one who turns from what he should know and do. You see, when you and I are called to live godly lives by others in Scripture itself, thank God for that reminder. I don't know why Christians are so offended that someone wants them to live a better life with God. Can you imagine that? most, Most business organizations, they want to improve their product. We as Christians are pathetic. Don't tell me my flaws. Let me deal with it myself. Well, don't you want to do better? Don't you want to serve Christ with more passion? Don't you want a better relationship with him and others? Is that just not on our radar? How dare you? You're a hypocrite yourself. We're a church. That means we're together. We're supposed to admonish one another. That means there's a give and take with lots going on. Thank God for that reminder from other brothers and sisters and the word that morning when you read it. Be humble enough to turn from pride, which constantly looks down at others 
And there's another form of pride that we don't think is pride. It despises correction from others. No, no, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. I don't need your help. The gift of correction is a gift many despise in the church. But it brings about fruit in the life of the saint. We just talked about this recently in our other studies. You think God's chastening is because he's got nothing better to do? You know what? (laughs) Fine. No, there's a purpose behind it. He wants you to be more conformed to Christ. We want to stay stagnant. I'm lacking motivation today. Lord, give me motivation. Sure. Not that kind, Lord. I don't want that. That's exactly how God works. You don't get to pick. You're chastening. You don't get to go, hey, there are three options and you pick one. God decides. Your mission does not end with a person coming to Christ, believer. The work continues with a pursuit of godliness. Which is one of the things I would want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself, those of you that are married, have we as a couple over the years grown more godly or not? Ask yourself that honestly. Here's a very daring question. Have we been raising our kids in a more godly manner or less lately? Because many believers, they slip up and they fall. And they go, well, I don't want to judge my kids because they struggle with that one sin, so I'm now going to completely unravel everything that God's called me to because I don't want to judge. One of the greatest forms of idolatry is when parents swap their kids' sin for what God's word says. That happens today in culture more than anybody wants to admit. I know a person that's struggling with this, so I won't condemn that sin because I know people that struggle with it. That doesn't negate the fact that it's still wrong. You don't get to give that person a pass based on you feeling bad about it. You absolutely can feel for the hurt people are going through because you have those things. But you don't lower the standard. It is as if you literally went through the Bible and went, nah, that doesn't apply anymore. We're in 2022. Paul didn't know what he was talking about. You can't have a God-focused church filled with people that don't care to pursue godliness themselves. It's in the word. God-like. Godliness. You can't say you want God and don't want to live as he would want. You're denying the very thing you're stating. That means the areas that you and I have already given up on, get back up and fight against them again. Doesn't matter how many years you've been struggling with that sin. You don't just go, eh, tried too many times, failed too many times. I'll get there eventually in glory. What a fight, huh? Get your cue from people like the Apostle Paul, not your buddy 
that doesn't care about fighting in his own spiritual walk. Some of the most disheartening things you'll find is other brothers and sisters that say, oh, you know, we're all the same. We're all just human. No, you're a saint. Remember that identity. You're called to more than just mere human. And yes, the struggles are real. No one's denying any of that. But you need to get back up. Fight the good fight of faith. Are those empty words by Paul or not? So many of us have given up. We've quit because it's hard. We like that other brother or sister that fought really hard. Oh, I love guys like Spurgeon. Look at all the things that he endured. You're given the same Holy Spirit. You're just too lazy. You're fascinated by others with victory, but you yourself wallow in self-pity. That's how we operate. Marriage or relationships aren't what they should be. Dig deep in the word. Not to one-up them. Oh, look at me, husband, wife. I'm going to the word because I want you to be convicted somehow. That's not why you do that. You go to the Word to learn how to connect with God so you can better connect with people. I'll say this. You become a lot more patient with people when you understand how patient God is with you. You don't get so quick to judge another brother or sister that could fall. So what happens when parenting isn't going the way you want? Well, you still pursue God and his word for the right reason. Not for some magic fix so you feel better as a parent. For the right reason. Because you want him, not just a better family dynamic and more obedient kids. You don't open the Bible just so God magically fixes your messed up family. It's not a reason to do it. In fact, if you actually open your Bible, you're going to see people that love God who have messed up families. That's the stunner. I've yet to find the optimal family and follow all their principles in the Bible yet. Every church, every family has its flaws. What if your finances seem to be a mess? What do you do then? Well, maybe we stop promising to care for the things of God while we pursue our own selfish desires all the time. Be a little more honest about it. Be a little more honest why we landed in the debt hole we did because we were doing things that we wanted. Nobody put a gun to our head, told us to spend it on Amazon or whatever it is we wasted our money on. (laughs) I can't help it. You can. You can. The Holy Spirit can enable you to withstand any of these things that you're struggling with. Is inflation partially to blame today? Sure is. Well, the question is, have you even used the principles of Proverbs and tried to adjust for inflation? 
with your own spending habits. The question is not whether it has an effect. Oh, it definitely has an effect. We see that in our bills here in the church. Absolutely does. You see, every one of us can notice the areas of weakness in others, can we not? How many of us get beyond recognizing our own and doing something about it? Oh, some of us do try, but we give up too soon, do we not? Well, I tried for like two weeks to reconnect. I'm done. Took you years to build that relationship, and you're assuming you can repair it after it was fractured for a couple days or weeks? We're not even realistic. Which is another reason why when a person is struggling, let's be patient in understanding that some things are going to take a little longer for people. You and I, to have a long, we need to have a long-term view of others as well. Stop thinking that everything and everyone will change overnight. And ask yourself, before you start going down that track, how quickly have everything that God has wanted to work on in your life changed? How quickly has everything that God's worked on in your life changed overnight? Most things that way? I mean, those of us that are very, how can I say this for lack of a better way, impatient with others. Is that like instant, God just, that day, oh, we're patient now. Or is that learned? It's learned. How long did God take in certain areas of your life? question is, have you arrived? And I dare say none of us have. You are not just to give up, but to pursue godliness, and with that pursuit, the gospel will be a beautiful picture to others around you. You know what doesn't really attract the world? is a Christian that lives what they don't really preach. A person that says, here's what I'm doing, but here's what I really told you. You want to show people that God matters more to you? Do you be willing to give, like others in the world aren't, of your time, your resources, your finances? Treat people with honor as they walk into your home because God deserves the respect And in doing so, you're serving him. Do you realize that? When a brother or sister comes to you, you are literally serving Christ when you serve them. Do we even have that mindset? Paul will be getting into some of these particulars in this book, so we're not going to jump into all of them and how to live the godly life. But let's finish up his introduction by looking at the recipient of his letter. This is the last part here. Number three, the recipient, verse four. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. What an incredible statement. A true son in our common faith. Paul had a close relationship with Titus. 
He was familiar with who he was and what he had in common with them. With Paul and his ministry. He knew how Paul, Paul knew how Titus connected with the overall commission. Titus more than likely came to saving faith under the preaching of the Apostle Paul and was a tremendous help in his ministry. Titus was a Gentile who Paul took to Jerusalem but refused to circumcise him as that was not a requirement for saving faith. A very important statement to be made here as many struggled out of the Jewish community as to how much or many of the Jewish rituals and customs were to be kept when a person came to saving faith that was a Gentile. Circumcision was assigned to the Jews. Let me repeat that. It was assigned to the Jews. No Gentile has ever been required if they've come to saving faith in Christ to be circumcised. And anybody that teaches that directly violates what Paul establishes in the New Testament. Titus was more than likely sent to deliver the letter of Paul to the church of Corinth as well. He got to deliver a very hard letter to the church of Corinth. So you can imagine Titus has uh, been the bearer of bad news to many on Paul's behalf. Titus was working in Crete and was called on by Paul to stay behind and work with that church. Now, Paul's greeting to Titus is common across other letters that Paul writes. As he addresses him with a salutation that would have been familiar to him in Greek culture, charis, which carries the idea of favor, grace from God. Paul taps into his Jewish background and proclaims shalom or peace, which was common in the Jewish culture, and even so today. Paul also includes mercy as a reminder to the minister that Titus has been called to be. You see, Paul understood the difficulties of men like Titus and Timothy, so much so that in his greetings he reminded them of the incredible blessings of God on their life, knowing the difficulty that they had to face in ministry. These men didn't have it easy. They had difficult things to deal with. Tensions. Absolute animosity at times towards them. You see, the truth is, we need to pause sometimes and think of the implications of a text like this for ourselves. How much have you thought, and ask yourself this for a moment, of God's grace, mercy, and peace this last week. Ask yourself, just for a moment, how much did I think about those this last week? You know how I know this was always on Paul's mind? He would start every letter with it. You know when it becomes just default? It's because you already have it locked in. It means something to Paul. 
And it should mean something to us. How much have you and I been aware of the gift of salvation in the favor that was shown to us? Is it something you really thought about much this last week? I want you to realize that when Paul's writing this, this is not just an add-on to the letter. I've got nothing better to do, grace, mercy, peace. You know it. No. This is something from the deep heart of an apostle. That as he's greeting his brother in Christ, he's giving a reminder theologically that we all need. So how much has grace amazed you this past week, brother or sister? Are we saying amazing grace? Yeah, we sing it, don't we? We're reminded once in a while, right, when we sing the song. How amazed were you this last week? Parents, did our kids see that we were amazed by any of that? Or were we more excited about doing something else? I always love that line from when I survey. Demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what amazing grace demands. Everything. And yet we're so easily excited about everything else many times. What about peace? Peace with God comes from favor with God. Peace of God comes from walking in the Spirit. They're not the same thing, brother and sister. You can be right before God but not feel peace in your heart. You and I both know that's true. Due to the circumstances around you, that peace is only found in a right relationship with God. And the reason why we're so distressed, worried, fearful, is because we have a lot of things that we've, not allow- we've allowed to take the place of the peace that was found in a right relationship with Christ and in walking with him. And what we do is we take shortcuts in our Christian life. We think that if we just do this, it'll make me happier or I'll feel a little better about my walk. Look, as great and encouraging as it might be to listen to a sermon one day or listen to a music that's worshipful, sometimes the only thing you and I need is to bow before God and humbly plead for mercy and peace from him. Because sometimes it's a euphoric feeling we're after and what we really need is stillness before God. A lot of the feelings that people feel in Christian churches are manufactured feelings. They're not of the Spirit necessarily. A person comes, oh, I felt the Spirit today. Well, that's great. Why are you living the rest of your week like that? Was that the peace of God that came upon you? Was that just a nice little soundtrack that you decided made you feel a little better? 
You can be right before God but not feel peace in your heart during, during those circumstances that are difficult. And by the way, it's always important to note this because we forget peace is a fruit of the Spirit, which is why the Spirit produces that in us. Anybody that tries to find God's peace apart from the Spirit will always lack. Which is one of the reasons why anybody that knows that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, if you're in this and you're reading it for the right reason, you'll have peace like you wouldn't believe many times. Why is this the first thing that goes many times? Because we think there's a shortcut to this whole thing. The hard due diligence of being in the Word, being taught by the Spirit, is the only way you and I will ever have that kind of peace that we desire. So many people want a certain feeling of calm, but refuse to make things right with God and others that He demands of them. You want to have disturbance in your life and anxiety? Pay attention to why some of that is the friction between you and others sometimes. Well, no, I'm going to avoid that. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to pretend I'm okay. I have peace. I have peace. I'm good. And yet that anxiety just ratchets up. It just cranks. Because you never worked it out. And what's unfortunate, and it's sad to say this as a pastor, people have done this for years. They're a mess. They haven't resolved anything with that person for years. And they wonder why they have no peace. Do you realize that you were reconciled to God so you can reconcile with others? That's what God's called you to? God didn't reconcile with you so you can give everybody the stiff arm. I'm better than you. The whole point of the gospel is you're not. Have you thought long and hard about how merciful God has been to you? Just this past week, how many times has that word mercy occurred in your mind? I mean, let's ask ourselves, how amazing was your performance? I mean, you just didn't, you know, you didn't need mercy. You were fine, right? So last week, if you were grading, A, plus. Is that how we are? You need mercy. I need mercy. Did you find yourself an entitled child of God? who thought that they deserve mercy because of some good deed they did. Oh, this garbage infiltrates every church in the world. It isn't just certain denominations that struggle with this one. We all do. There's something inside us that goes, if I just do something nice for someone today, maybe the Lord will be good to me. As if I, I owed, I'm owed that now. Paid for the guy behind me in the drive-thru. Lord, you owe me more. You deserve nothing but wrath, brother or sister. It's the mercy of God that you're even breathing today. So 
So many followers of Christ abuse the mercy of God and think that it's just endless. God will just extend infinite chances to me. God's divine mercy and salvation has no end once you've trusted him. What he promises, he will deliver on. But in this life, there are consequences. And the chastening hand of God is also merciful many times. We are filled with anxiety because we aren't resting on what has already been done for us many times. Which is one of the reasons why when you and I walk according to the Spirit, we do what God's Word says, we realize in that moment that we're not trusting in ourselves and what we've done. The Spirit-led brother or sister knows, you know what? It's all Jesus. It's all Him. And I'm following Him. And I'm resting in what He's already accomplished and what He will accomplish. Not in my performance, because goodness gracious, if we have banked on our performance, none of us would have any confidence whatsoever. Nor should we. God, who cannot lie, promised us certain things. And we just refuse to believe him many times, do we not? Oh, we say we believe God on all this. Here's what's amazing about us as Christians. We believe God for eternity. We don't believe him about today. Oh, God, I trust you with my life. Really? How anxious were you over something petty last week? Oh, I got to get all this done. You're trusting him for eternity, and yet you're terrified over the most ridiculous thing that if you were to mention it to a brother or sister, you'd be like, I'm too embarrassed to share it with you. Here's what I was anxious about the other day. So in conclusion, here's the question. Have you forgotten the groundwork? Have you forgotten the groundwork? Grace, mercy, and peace are components that every believer ought to be reminded of. So much so that Paul includes this in his greeting to many of the churches that he writes to and individuals that he writes to. Sometimes just grace and peace, but sometimes grace, mercy, and peace. In light of grace, how motivated are you in living the Christian life, believer? Do you check out believing you somehow deserve better because you've done something for someone or read your Bible that day? You know, that one time last week? Like that's supposed to now give you clearance for a while? Like, man, we have it so backwards sometimes. We're saying we don't want to trust our works, but that's what we do many times. Grace is a gift that so many of us take for granted. Because it's given to us without any qualifications on our end. That's why it's grace. If it's anything to do with us, it's no longer grace. Because it's undeserved by the Father given to his children. Which means that we as followers of Christ are to show that grace to others knowing that we ourselves are not qualified. 
Has God's mercy been a reminder to you this last week? Have you been absolutely broken over the mercy that God has shown you this past week? Let's ask this. Are you one that assumes mercy from God but demands justice of others from God? It's amazing how many of us are forgiven so many things, but we're so demanding that God deal with someone else. Oh God, be gracious to me, be merciful to me. Not to them. They deserve it. Check your heart, please. Have you become that proud brother looking down at the prodigal, forgetting what you've been forgiven of? I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, church. There's a lot of people I've gotten to know over the years, and one of the most blessed things that I think as a pastor you get to see and witness is a brother or sister from years ago where they were and where they are today. And people today are like, oh man, they're not where they should be and this and that. And I'm going, you have no idea how far they've come. If you saw them years ago, they wouldn't be anywhere near as about the business of discipleship as they are today in serving in the church today and caring for others today. Oh, are they still flawed? Absolutely. So am I. A man, is it encouraging to see how God works with people for many years. If you were to take a look at your life, would it be a life of peace? Do you have the calmness in the storm knowing that the sovereign hand of God is there and nothing can separate you from him? Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. Do you believe that? You wrestle with your standing with God because your performance doesn't line up. Listen, believer, that should not be your struggle because God does not lie. If you've trusted Christ, you have full assurance that God will get you home. It's fully paid. God didn't go, hey, wait a second, you know what? Up to this point, that's all I've paid for. Fully paid. That's what makes grace amazing again. He has made a promise to us and he will keep that promise. Having a life that's led by the Spirit will give you more of the calmness to weather any storm in life. You're safe in His hands, but your assurance comes from obedience to Him. Not when you and I live out in rebellion. Don't ever ask for God's assurance while you refuse to do what he says. It doesn't work that way. I want to close, brothers and sisters, with what Paul states here. We'll close in prayer this morning. Grace, mercy, and peace 
from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior.